Hey everyone and welcome to Digital Foundry Direct Weekly number 95. Yes, we're hurtling towards the big 100. Uh, we're not there yet though. <laughs> and uh, we've got plenty of hot topics to discuss this week. And uh, joining me first of all, John Linneman. I'm just back from Hot Topic myself and uh, I am excited to talk about these other hot topics today. <laughs> and uh, of course, Alex Batalia. John, how many novelty shirts, bongs, and or sex toys did you buy at Hot Topic? Uh, I need three of each. Okay, good. Wow. <laughs> and of course, you're not talking about the Hot Topic so much, Alex, because the games in question are not yet in your possession. No, we're just hitting that point right now. There was the lull at the beginning of the year, and all of a sudden we're going to have like six games releasing Yeah, you get to do like so. three time capsules in a row, and that was super fun. Yeah. Man. It's the fun stuff. It. That's the fun stuff. Mm. But, but now it gets down to the nitty gritty. Anyway, let's talk about our first topic of the week. Uh, yes, talking about hot topics, um, essentially we have had the uh, reveal this week of recommended specifications for Forspoken or uh, Sporfoken, as I prefer to call it, <laughs> and, um, and Returnal. And uh, basically people aren't happy and the reaction seems to be, are PC minimum specs out of control? <laughs> um <laughs> That's that's the screaming headline. Yeah. And I think we need to sort of talk about this because, well, the bottom line is that um, not really. Is this? No. <laughs> Alex, why don't you take point on this one? Sure. Okay. So the, the context of all of this to me is we are two years into the current gen of consoles. And at some point in time, there would be, and there has literally always been, <laughs> so this is nothing new, there is an uptick in the minimum recommended specs for a PC trying to get a game that was designed around those consoles as a base. And in this case, uh, for both games, it is B PS5 baseline as the thing that was targeted for the game, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, for something like Returnal, it's really obvious. For Forspoken, Sporefoken, it really obvious that game's coming out on PC. Who knows when it eventually started its development just for PS5? It's hard to know those things, but we know at least for Returnal in this case, uh, that is definitely a PS5 only game kind of thing. And that, of course, includes the fact that the PS5 base experience is, you know, seven logical or seven cores essentially available to developers there, a good amount of video memory and um, an SSD as your baseline experience usually. And when we look at, for example, Forspoken's uh, requirements there, they are extremely reasonable given the fact that the what the PS5 specs are. Um, and then you look at the game itself based upon the demo that we have already had access to, which has now been updated. Um, if you look at the performance mode in that, um, I don't know, obviously, what settings it's using, the recommended or the ultra settings. It's really hard to tell uh, since we don't have the game on PC to compare with at this point in time and things like that. But if you just look at that and you look at the fact that it's using FSR2 scaling up to some presumably sub 4K resolution, it's hard to tell. Uh, and it like bottoms out at like it's constantly at 900p internally and apparently according to some pixel counts it like bottoms out at like 720p at times as a game targeting a current gen machine just to hit a not always consistent 60 fps well that says a lot about the game <laughs> itself actually um <laughs> that is very intense and so you would see that i think reflected in the pc specs here if we looked at the recommended uh, there is some weirdness though here i will not lie especially with the first spoken one uh, when you look at some of the things that are supposed to be equivalent to one or the other um when you get to those ultra specs there 
they're saying 2160p 60 fps does that mean native resolution even though the game on console is using fsr2 well this is the problem with recommended specs is they're not specific enough Mm -hmm. always and in this case they're definitely not but there's also a weird equivalency in here between the amd radeon rx 6800 xt 16 gigs and the nvidia geforce rtx 40 Uh, 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 alex let me correct you their requirements actually specify the GeForce GTX for GTX, a product which does I'm not exist. At, I'm looking at an up, well, I'm looking at the news story from The Verge, and it does actually say RTX. So I think they may have they updated, updated it. it. They they did update it. That's corrected true. So they, they've corrected this. Now now yeah. they recommend a product that does exist. They do recommend a product that does exist. But I mean, Rich can attest to it. He's done the the hardcore benches for these GPUs. And RTX 4080 is never the equivalent Mm -hmm. of the RX 6800 XT, unless you're looking at some weird outlier like... Well, I don't think even a weird no, outlier. No, like weird outliers here, Alex. Sorry. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, what I will say, what is further adding to the confusion is that when you get to the recommended specs, the 6700 XT is comparable to the 3070 Right. Yes. So the concept that you know, you know, the forty eighty is light years ahead of the sixty eight hundred XT. So unless Ultra Settings is doing something, you know, insanely requiring Different. a specific <laughs> AMD component, it doesn't so make sense. The, the thing is, Rich is looking at presentations for this game. This might be the heaviest use of AMD Fidelity FX features we've ever seen in a game. They are using fidelity FX features that I didn't even realize were fidelity FX features. There's so <laughs> many that they that they've listed, and I'm just like, it does make you wonder, like, what's going on here? <laughs> Maybe there is actually something that that causes this to be the situation. So one thing that I've seen uh, theorized about this, and there's only so much theorizing you can do right. because it's just so opaque. Yeah. These these settings uh, are so opaque. But um, people have been saying much like. Uh, Far Cry 6, which had a had a very kind of semi-arbitrary feeling VRAM limitation, mm-hmm. uh, depending upon what your settings were there, where the ultra 4K resolution texture pack that was in the ultra settings that you could enable uh, didn't even like work very well on like a 12 gigabyte GPU and had even issues if you were above that on the NVIDIA side. Um, like I've I've literally played the game on a 3090 and I've had textures not load in at times, even that has 24 gigs. Wait, in which Far Cry 6? Uh, Far Cry 6, it's happened. Oh, I think. Well, I, at least it did okay. at launch. I don't know if it's been updated. I think, I I think it has it been fixed time. based on my experience last year. Okay, well, so some, some speculation about this was that it could be one of those games that the highest uh, ultra settings, whatever they may be, may actually require more VRAM um, when you include in things like um, RT with. Um, the high res- high resolution textures. In which case, if it goes above 12 gigabytes, then the only other NVIDIA offering that does technically exist that's not a 3090 is stuff like the 4080 mm. and 4090. Um, but that's another thing we'll have to see when the game launches. I think at the moment, one thing that is always prudent is just to never freak out when you see uh, system requirements posted for any game. Unless they're super detailed, uh, and I think ones that are much more detailed than the Forspoken ones are the ones for Returnal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're actually really well laid out. Uh, they say things like average performance. They say the graphic setting preset name. They say the GPU. <laughs> they say the resolution, um, and you know the, the 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 frame rate target, as well as things like SSD, HDD, etc. And this is one game where. 
I'm really actually happy that it says SSD recommended for the minimum, even though it'll technically install to an HDD like any game really would. Um, I'm very happy about that. And these ones I think are actually super, super in line with what I would have expected for the game. They, For, for example, this uh, recommended spec, I'm imagining this is going to be PS5 settings based upon the fact that it's an RTX 2070 Super, which is the go-to GPU I use in all my videos, essentially, for saying this is like a PS5, and a 6700 XT, which I think is maybe a little bit faster at times than what we see on a PS5. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, and who knows uh, the reason for that? That's something I can maybe bear out in my review. But these are the ones where I was looking at them, just the way they're laid out, um, the things that they're describing in them, the CPUs recommended. It all aligns perfectly what I imagine a good console equivalent settings would look like. So this one is reasonable. The four spoken ones are the ones that are a little bit troubling. Uh, but in general, I'm just going to say, like, don't freak out when system requirements come out. Wait for the reviews. Um, and there are a number of sites which do um, per game reviews. You know, you've got your computer base. Uh, you've got us. Yeah. And there's a couple others that do it as well, too, these days still. And wait for that as well as the user experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think okay. you really can't read into them just because they're not actually a hard limit. I think they just want to guarantee, like, if you have this level of hardware, you'll have a pretty good experience at these settings, right? But that doesn't mean you can't mm-hmm. go lower than that and still pull something out, right? Uh, I mean, this, yeah. there used to be yeah. a time in PC games when the minimum specs were actually minimum. Like, if you didn't have that level of hardware, the game may not you actually boot run. the game. Right? You could not boot so, the game. Yeah, it's pretty rare that, these days yeah. unless you have, like, a really old CPU that doesn't have instructions. Precisely. Uh, and, uh, and even in that case, that's, like, we're talking about incredibly like, old CPUs. I, I mean, we're going we're gonna to try to run this on a Steam Deck, right? Like, I think that's the idea, especially for Returnal. Yeah. I'm I'm very curious about that because it is a game that seems like it would fit the Steam Deck uh, like design mentality, roguelike elements and things like exactly, that. It's really good exactly. for that. For Spoken, less so. Another thing I want to talk about in regard to both of these specs is the way they're advertising their PC versions. <laughs> uh, one actually seems very bare bones and the other one seems really great. Uh, so Returnal to me seems like a really good PC version. We've already seen leaks of the uh, the menu itself. And a lot of other things, there's like things like Dynamic Res, I believe, is in there. There's DLSS uh, 2 and in the ultra latest version of it, uh, which I think replaces the DLSS sharpening with NIS, if I recall, as well. Uh, Then there's FSR 2. I'm going to presume it's going to be one of the later versions of it. And, you know... As well, on top of all these other features like that go above and beyond the console version, you have ray trace shadows, presumably higher settings for other things because there's epic settings in the engine itself, and then ray trace reflections, which is something not at all on console. Right. Uh, and it should definitely upgrade the visuals there. Go over to Forspoken. I think John can talk about this. Where oh, I, I laughed about this. Uh, they they put out that trailer, yeah. right? And some of the things that they highlight in here crack me up at one point at about 24 seconds they freedom of play where they basically say yeah it supports a mouse and keyboard and a controller and it's like you dedicated like five seconds of the trailer to that and then you know supports ultra widescreen which is great and they specify only in gameplay not cutscenes but then stuff like graphical customization you can customize your graphics it has smooth performance with fsr2 it's just like the whole trailer is cut with these things. It's like, well, yeah, that should be like the bare minimum for your PC version. Yeah. So why would you dedicate these custom tech? I mean, 
they clearly made put work into this trailer, right? Some of the text actually like reflects into the screen space reflections in the game world. So it's like <laughs> this required production work. And I'm just surprised yeah, really that these are the things that they chose to highlight. It reminds me of that infamous Halo Infinite PC video where they're like, we're going to make the best PC version ever. It's like, it's got, you can use your mouse and keyboard. You, you know, we got, we got widescreen <laughs> support, all the best PC stuff. And it's like, it's usually not a good sign. And the last, the last no. thing I have to joke about is that if you pre-order it digitally on the PC, they give you a cloak, necklace, and fingernail combo that's all RGB-based. So that feels like the <laughs> ultimate, like, you know, tip of the hat to the PC audience. Like, you can get your RGB cloak <laughs> in the game. Wow. Uh, yeah, there's something to be said about... Um, I mean, I've talked about it in the most recent video I did at the beginning of this year where there's like some really bare minimum stuff. And I actually honestly do think at this point in time, something like Ultra Wide is pretty, really bare minimum for a game. Um, like a lot of people use Ultra Wide and it's a really kind of standard thing to see on people buying and building PCs in spite of some maybe percentages that the Steam hardware survey will said, uh, say, I think it is actually a, a base part of the pc port experience these days so to see it advertised in a trailer definitely makes me think usually as like one of the core features and not other things makes me think they're just kind of like this is a bare minimum port but we'll see when it comes out i'm gonna be covering it i presume uh so uh we'll see well look there is some progress here in in both of these uh, uh recommended spec sheets they do actually specify the target frame rate and resolution for the various yeah. settings which um which fire to this, it hasn't exactly been a standard, right? Which basically makes the whole recommendations completely meaningless. It's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at least yeah. at least this time, you know, we've got some idea of, of what's going on there. And um, in terms of uh, minimum specifications getting out of control, 1060 is a capable GPU, right? But it was a capable GPU when it launched, when it offered GTX 980 level performance, essentially. So, you know, come on, guys, it's 2023. And uh, <laughs> and we're talking about ports of titles that were developed for hardware that came out in 2020, and it's it was good hardware. It still is good hardware. So to mm-hmm. you know to basically um, expect you know PCs with 2016 level um, uh, GPUs to be able to get you know 1080p 60 or whatnot, it's just not viable. Um, obviously. We'll be taking a look at Forspoken probably sooner rather than later. We haven't been offered code uh, for that one. We have for the console versions. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, I don't know. Yeah. The thing is, after you know, we get a lot of heat for pointing out that AMD sponsored titles are, are often not great on PC. Callisto Protocol kind of reinforced our points. To be honest, um, I'm hoping yeah. for better things from this one. From first spoken, from first yeah. spoken for sure. And if you look at um, uh, Returnal, it actually seems to be the way it should be, which is you know mm-hmm. essentially vendor agnostic. You know, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. The thing about Callisto that still gets me though is that usually AMD sponsored titles do, and if you just look at look at them, they typically have reduced ray tracing focus. Right, they sort of keep it light. But Callisto Protocol was kind of the opposite of that, I'd say. <laughs> so, it's very it's very uh, yeah that that was at least interesting and 
kind of a positive thing, I would argue, that it did actually have those features available, at least, even if they run somewhat slowly. But still, it was a, well, it was a good yeah. thing. Some of, the, some of the benchmarks on that one are quite fascinating because you do see RDNA 2 competing with, with Ampere, right? And the reason it's competing is because both of those GPU architectures are horrendously CPU limited. Yeah, so, yeah right. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, it's a double-edged sword there, John. Indeed, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically, you can put in these advanced ray tracing features Features, but you're paying for it with the fact that you know the CPU requirement is so it's monstrous. So absurd. Oh, yeah. yeah, that game is. I don't it's know. Monstrous. It still needs a lot of work, in my opinion. But by the way, uh, for for Forspoken, I did look back at Final Fantasy 15 on the PC, and I was delighted to mm-hmm. see that aside from some shader comp stutter, uh, a 4090 can indeed deliver a nice 120 frames per second experience with all features on, including things like NVIDIA Turfworks. And, uh, yeah. Turf and, and the not funny but awesome VXAO, which actually looks pretty darn good. So, uh, what about Hairworks? Hair, Hairworks. I think it's a, if it's in there, I had it on. Don't they, I? Okay. Don't they have they have Hairworks on like the yaks? Oh yeah, the yeah. Like, like animals like or something animals. like that. So, but either way, Final Fantasy 15 <laughs> it still looks really good. And if you have a more recent PC, it seems to run really well. So, you know, that's always good. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, stuff. yeah, I bet you can't wait to be taking a look at this one, Alex. <laughs> um, Maybe, we'll see. <laughs> what do you make of these uh, escalating memory specifications? You know, we're looking at a minimum 16 gigs, rises to 32 gigs on both. Again, it's kind of uh, just just the direction of travel, right? Yeah, that is. But it's also something that we haven't seen. Like, I haven't done any testing of 16 versus 32 in specific games that have done recommendations for them. Uh, For example, Spider-Man's very high ultra setting in their initial spec sheet, it also said 32 when you'd go up to that, Um, much like it does here. uh, When you go up to Epic settings here, it says, oh, uh, you have 32 all of a sudden. It's hard to actually imagine why that that would be the case, uh, because, you know, you imagine system memory is the place where um, resident textures exist for a while from disk as they're transiently there, as they're going into uh, video memory based upon the way the PC systems developed. Um, But textures don't get bigger or anything like that when you up resolution, uh, usually in most games. Uh, well, <laughs> and also things like the the um, all the structures made usually for the BVH they are somewhat pre-processed on the CPU side, but the the BVH is actually in memory a video memory yeah. there. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure where that 32 so, comes Alex, from necessarily. Here's my theory on this: uh, the minimum RAM requirements have increased. I think that's true, but I think the people writing these requirement sheets may simply feel the need to well. For the recommended, we just have to up the specs, right? Like that's just what you do with yeah. with with specs. So if the minimum's now sixteen, they're just like, oh, just put it thirty-two or twenty-four. You know yeah. what I mean? Even if there's not actually yeah. a really genuinely good reason for it, it's just like it. So your your contention is that it's kind of like covering their asses, yeah, basically. Uh, Th- that's a very smart way to put it. Okay. <laughs> um, I would love to do a test, though, uh, in regards to both of these games, whether or not this 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 actually bears out in anything. Uh, I would need to have like a proper kit for that. I think I've got enough uh, memory to do that kind of a test. Actually, maybe it requires its own video at its own right uh, at some point in time with it when it slows down when the really schedule slows down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but th- that seems like something that could actually be interesting to look at because eight gigabytes is obviously not enough anymore. Right. No. I think. 
uh, and I think that's fine because uh, 16 gigs is really cheap these days. Um, regardless, so well, these yeah. games can't before, touch Adobe Premiere when it comes to memory requirements. I'll say that much. <laughs> yes, or, Nothing or Chrome. Or Chrome. <laughs> yeah. Um, just a question from a supporter before we move on. Hi, DF team. For Spoken's PC requirements, interestingly recommend a Lovelace 4080, but also an RDNA 2 6800 XT. Do you think that due to the current gen consoles being RDNA 2 based, that those discrete graphics cards will end up having longer legs in terms of viability for the PC space? Modern Warfare 2 was similarly AMD biased with RDNA 2 regularly besting the Ampere requirements. So Alex, um, this has not been borne out from the prior generations, which also were based on AMD architectures, right? It just seems to be the case that games generally favor one architecture or another, really. Yeah, it really is, because it's from game to game very different. You look at things like, um, what was it, uh, like Gears of War, for example, in your most recent testing, or Forza Horizon. It's uh, Those are games that are originally designed around like the consoles as the, like, minimum base back there. But if you look at the way they scale across um, equivalent or semi-equivalent AMD to NVIDIA architectures, you see that sometimes NVIDIA is beating them, the AMD cards there in a way that you wouldn't expect if this was a title that was originally designed only around the right. consoles as a base. Uh, so I think it is very much so title to title. And Modern Warfare 2 is one of those I think we could probably ask them at some point in time why it is scaling the way it is, because it is one of the larger outliers we see. Uh, and it is a rasterization compute title. It's not like ray trace or anything like that. Mm. Um, so it would be interesting to know why it is doing that the way it is uh, well, in the future. There's also, you know, going back to the last generation or the generation before that in terms of GPUs, you know, Forza Horizon 4 was always a stone cold AMD win, right? Yep. Um, but now with um, the new cards on Forza Horizon 5, RDNA 3 is not, not competitive against Lovelace at all. So, yeah, it, mm. it just kind of seems to vary from architecture to architecture, basically. So it's, mm -hmm. it's kind, of, kind of weird, right? It is very curious. Mm. Uh, let's move on to the next news topic. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure how we're going to cover this one, but um, it is big news and obviously um, very sad news. Uh, this week, Microsoft announced that it had uh, laid off 10,000 people across the business. Mm. Uh, there's been a lot of impact on um, certain uh, development studios. Uh, there's talk of um, staff being lost from the coalition, from Bethesda. Um, the headlines and much of the social media reaction seems to have been based around uh, 343 Industries and Halo Infinite, where, you know, uh, I don't think it's a secret that this was a troubled development. John, what's your take on this? Oh boy, this is such a difficult one. Obviously, I'm I'm feeling terrible for everybody affected by this because especially just right now things are not good. Uh and you know, we can get in it's beyond DF to get into the whole shareholders by all this stuff, but either way, uh I will say uh, in regards to Halo Infinite, I I do continue to feel like 343 Industries as a the, their story is one of the more depressing in the industry. Uh, I think a lot of people joined that company wanting to make Halo. They loved Halo. Uh, some of them grew up with it. And there is a sense that, and this comes also from some of the people that worked there, that the leadership just couldn't get it done. They couldn't properly organize the people to create these games in a way that 
that worked or made sense. And we're just kind of left with products that I, I'd say it feels like three, four, three's only real, truly successful initial big hit was like halo four. And even that had some backlash. And ever since then, it feels like every release is troubled. Uh, isn't goes through a very lengthy, difficult development cycle. Uh, I don't know. I, I really hate to see it. And it feels like the people that are being let go here aren't necessarily, it's not necessarily because of performance. Just, it's just, they're, they're on that list. Right. And, uh, I don't know that, that really bothers me because it feels like leadership maybe isn't, yeah, I don't know. I, I, we don't know enough to say about what's happening internally. It's just, it, it really bums me out to think about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts, Alex? For me, it's the scale that is actually uh, the most depressing. It, it, it part is. Of this. It is. An, well, this here's the thing, right? We're talking. I can't even visualize in my mind ten thousand people. Yeah, ten thousand people. This is astonishing. It, it's like it's honestly almost like if you were to like imagine all the journalists just being fired. Every single video games journalist. I mean, I don't know how many <laughs> there are many. out there across the web, but ten thousand is a lot of people. And I mean, Microsoft's a massive company, and this is it's, it wasn't just the gaming side. There was like a lot of core yeah, Microsoft yeah, yeah. services and um, like new acquired teams and things like that. But one thing that um, does, in terms of like a strategic thing that we talked about a little bit before this is, it is weird to be wanting to acquire another company at the same time as letting go of employees at your traditional mm. like core companies. And it's just one of those things for, for me where I don't understand corporate politicking or shareholder, whatever. I don't understand any of that at all. Like, seriously, I don't even well, pretend you know, I do. Let's, let's be clear. It's, it always let's feels be clear. Weird. The, the merger was announced literally a year ago, and it was probably yeah. in motion for many months before that. I can't imagine that during those months they were thinking, okay, well, 18 months from now or whatever, we're going to have to let go 10,000 people. <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, um, this sort of correlation between the uh, acquisition and letting these people go, it, it kind of, th th these are two very different parts of the business, right? And, you know, it's not as if they can suddenly pull back. It's more of an optics say, thing, hey. Rich, rather than an actual Thing, it's, right? uh, absolutely, yeah. That's that's it, right? Um, but obviously, the when you are dealing with ten thousand people, the sums are are quite astonishing because you know, however many billions that are being pitched to buy uh, Activision Blizzard would keep those mm -hmm. ten thousand people employed for decades. Yep, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. But but as I said, these are you know two entirely different parts of the business, two entirely different decisions. And it's not as if, you know, once you've made the offer, there are certain regulatory requirements, you know, as Elon Musk will confirm, you can, it's not so easy to back out. <laughs> so, offering. Yeah, the offering. That's good. Didn't they post uh, a yeah. record profits, though, in the last year? Oh, I, I, don't think, I think they're, they're I, I doing exceptionally well right now. And it, yeah, is it the Xbox business that's doing that, though, or is it, you know, Outlook yeah. 365, Office 365, right. which is just sort of like, you know, the, again, it's so many different... I mean, Microsoft as a business is inconceivable to, to you know, to yeah, actually so. assess. Uh, you can bring all sorts of parallels, I'd imagine, to the fore um, mm. to, to, to sort of make this look bad. But, you know, it's it's just not great all around, really, is it? You don't like yeah. people losing jobs. It, 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 yeah, that's the thing. And uh, at least one thing that I've I've seen was very positive. This is uh, co-workers of these people, as well as uh, other companies are already like yeah. 
looking and searching for hiring That's positions great. to get these people back on their feet. And in the case of a lot of Microsoft stuff, where a lot of it is actually based in the United States, uh, a lot of people come into the United States on working mm -hmm. visas and have to essentially really quickly acquire a new job to stay within their visa 60 permit. days. And I, that's those 60 days. And I feel like that is a huge, uh, thing where I don't know what the tech industry does about that. It, it feels, it feels really cold to me to just like, like, I mean, at least this didn't happen right before the Christmas holiday time, the end of the year holiday time. Uh, but it's still, um, it still feels like super cold to me that, you know, you're just kind of left on your own after you're, you're fired or whatever. So well, it's, it's the it seems to be the American way based yeah, on what I've seen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, hmm. mm, okay. Um, obviously there are other layoffs that were, uh, published this week and obviously, um, um, oh my goodness! Yeah, right. Yeah, our thoughts go out to our colleagues in the in the games media business that have also been affected. Yeah. Um, again, there's there's not really too much more I can say about that because you know ultimately I just hope these people do find gainful employment elsewhere within the business. Um, but well, what can I say? It's uh, it's it's never good. There's no good way to handle this. I don't think. Um, what I would say, though, is that, you know, if you are acquired by a, a large company and uh, their track record, their values and their track record are not in line with the original business, there's going to be friction oh, yeah. and there's going to be problems Absolutely. like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, we didn't really want to talk about this because, you know, we, essentially, we aren't really qualified. No, exactly. To, Just ramblings. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's just really, really sad to see. Um, yeah, so that's that. Um, let's move on to the next news topic. I guess we're very, very close to the release of PlayStation VR two now. Surprisingly low key run up. I mean, at the time of recording this, we've still not even seen it, <laughs> which is, <Yeah. laughs> which is, I think, unprecedented for a hardware launch. Um, but we do now have uh, visibility on the entire launch window lineup. Uh, John, you're going to be handling the mm -hmm. PSVR two review for us, and obviously, you're deeply invested in VR in general. That's right. What is uh, your perception of this lineup? What's oh your boy. take? This is a tricky one because so the the big problem I see that they're going to be facing here is that they don't really have a truly killer title at launch. I think if you look over this list, there's actually a lot of really great stuff, and it's you know it's typical of VR to have a lot of interesting experiences that may not offer that brand recognition. But uh, the the big two brands I guess they do have here that are original or kind of Sony related is obviously horizon call of the mountain which i've heard a yep. lot of good things about despite the fact that it seems to be a pretty narrow experience so i'll be curious to see if that actually really works because i think the general public perception is is that this is not a full horizon game which it's not uh but maybe it'll mm -hmm. still be really interesting the big one for me though actually is the fact that gran turismo 7 does seem to have been confirmed that you get the actual gt7 experience so it seems to be the full game. Uh, the hmm, Kaz even says like everything except for split screen is here, uh, which obviously that makes sense, split screen. But that's a great change over GT Sport, which had extremely limited PSVR support. So that could be great. Uh, then there's other games that have existed before that are coming back. You know, uh, Res Infinite and Tetris Effect are both arriving, and those could benefit a lot just from... I, those are great VR games and just having the higher fidelity of uh, these headsets 
now available, it could make those experiences even better, I would say. So, but again, they're nothing new. But uh, Resident Evil Village as well, that's getting a VR update this time, and it seems to be more complete and well thought out than... People loved RE7's VR implementation, but it was really just a headset implementation with the typical controls, right? This seems to be taking advantage of the new controllers to deliver more of a uh, full, you know, full body experience in line with like a Half-Life Alex kind of thing, right? Uh, which is great. There's Moss 1 and 2 remasters. That's great. No Man's Sky is there. That's cool. I mean, uh, there's a new game from Cyan Worlds coming here. The Last Clockwinder, you know, hmm. of Mist fame, for those that still remember Mist. Uh, Fantavision. Yeah, John, why am I excited about Fantavision in VR? I am. Yeah, because that's actually... <laughs> so Fantavision really is, if they pull it off, it is really just... It's a visual showcase. It was designed on PS2 to showcase the particle systems that were possible on that system. And fireworks are beautiful. They're, they are a visual thing that you see. And trying to replicate this with these nice OLED screens uh, and high res and looking all around, it could be quite an immersive and interesting experience that, you know, I'm excited for, but it can go on and on. If you actually really go through each title, I think you'd find a lot of interesting stuff that looks fun, but the real problem is it's just the price is super high. The economy situation's not great. Uh, there's not much in the way of real killer titles here. I think the big one, that might have actually had a chance at breaking through as a killer title would have been something with the Astrobots, you know? Yeah. Because Playroom mm -hmm. is well known for PS on PS5 for what they did there because it came with every system. People loved it. And their prior game, uh, Astro's Rescue Mission, is considered, and I oh, would yeah. say it's pretty much the best game on PSVR 1, I think. Mm -hmm. Bringing that back and doing it like a big follow-up to that for PSVR 2 at launch would have been... That could have been the big title. And I really hope those guys have something in the works along those lines coming up. But it's a shame we didn't get it straight away. So I don't know. I, I'm very curious to see it. And I suspect, I don't know, it, it just, VR is in such a weird place now, right? Because when PSVR launched, there was this mystique to it. I think, especially for console players, that they had, you didn't know what it was. They hadn't experienced what modern VR could bring. Now I think most people, they have. Uh, and so it doesn't have that mystery to it anymore. It's like, well, this is just a big spec bump. So that's going to make this a tough sell, especially when you consider the price and the still availability issues with PS5 in general. So, whew, man. I don't get it. I I'm telling you, John, I don't get it. You know, for example, um, I just don't understand where the marketing is. Uh, GT7, we had uh, a snippet at CES. Yeah. On the stage, the, the concept, the concept of the entire Gran Turismo Seven being playable in VR, should have had a state of play. That's awesome, right? right? Like that is such a cool thing, and I, I'm, I am also surprised that they're not pushing things like that in the marketing. Like, what are they doing? And I still, I, I still, know, I still haven't seen enough of Horizon to have any kind of opinion on it. <laughs> so you know there there are some sort of it's low hanging fruit here in marketing terms and it seems very low key and I don't I don't understand it you know I'm not going to say they're sending it out to die because there's obviously a you know pretty good title support here GT7 mm -hmm. being ported into the into a VR must have been quite an undertaking yeah. right 
I mean, consider um, the requirements so, of that game. It was a native 4K experience that even had some dips on the PS5 in rainy conditions, right? So mm-hmm. what kind of performance considerations did they have to take into account to get it running in VR? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, it, let's assume that it's going to be down to... Uh, down to the press to actually talk about this thing and champion how good it is, assuming it is uh, good, which I think it will be based on what we've, what little we've seen so far. How would you approach this? Would you do something like you did with Doom 3? Where, you know, I guess, I, th- I do think there is something to be said for that kind of um, let's play in a VR style environment. Yeah, so I think there's there's t- multiple approaches there's there's the hardware itself and then there's the games right and i think for the hardware it's more about once i get hands on with it i can finally sort of explain to people coming from a position having used many vr set headsets i want to be able to present what this thing actually offers and what the specs bump brings to the experience uh, because I feel we've been kind of mired in, there are still some high-end PC headsets hitting, but we've been kind of mired in this like low performance zone for so long because of the popularity of standalone headsets, right? Uh, so this is this is a big new headset that's really pushing technology pretty far, and you know just being able to discuss how that actually works in practice is key. And I'll also be key to see how many of these titles are targeting frame rates well above 60, or if they're just going to do, you know, asynchronous time warp from 60 FPS, which was really common on PSVR 1. And actually very effective, I should note. It, it worked super well. But uh, And then the games themselves, you know, sharing capture, I'll probably set up the old green screen again and and do it that way and see what we can come up with from there. Yeah, I think there are certain games where I just want to see more much more uh you know i want to know how gt7 is you know in the thick of it so to speak horizon you know I, you know I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to just have a slice of horizon to understand what it's really doing because i don't really know yeah i think doing green screen style stuff i can at least try to explain and showcase because you'll have your hands in the vr space right so you can actually like point to things you know highlight how things work uh, all of that kind of stuff, which is cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not quite sure when all of this is going to kick off, but uh, I suspect that reviews will be going live pretty much alongside the headset, maybe a week before or something like that at the best. So, we, yeah, we're going to do our best to bring you the best coverage there. Um, but, you know, I, I suspect that hardware is going to be limited. Um, but mm-hmm. let's move on to the next news topic. Uh, so it's kind of like um, uh, a tale of extremes in the cloud streaming world this week. Uh, Stadia died, finally. And um, on the plus side, GeForce Now 4080 uh, Ultimate tier launched pretty much the day after Stadia died. Uh, we've <laughs> done a eulogy of sorts on Stadia Um but what interests me is that GeForce Now seems to be doing pretty much what the cloud systems promised to do from day one and which Stadia mm-hmm. didn't deliver. So you consider this. Um, when the systems were actually uh, first revealed, I mean, going back to OnLive, it was always about you, you really can't tell the difference between um, uh, native and a streamed uh, presentation that's clearly nonsense for online yeah i mean geforce now 4080 i'm you know I'm, i've been playing it at 4k 120 and um that is quite astonishing 
still not quite as good as a visual presentation from a local piece of hardware but i do have a 48 inch display right in front of my eyes right if that was in a living room environment i don't think i would be able to tell it apart um, secondly the whole concept of um, stadia was in fact when i spoke to phil harrison about this he was saying we do not want developers to be limited by compute they were talking about daisy chaining together systems to give them as much gpu power as they wanted and pretty much well the only system that has actually delivered increases in gpu power i think geforce is now up to its fourth generation of of graphics upgrades in its server infrastructure the 4080 uh, performance varies compared to a standard 4080 but the bottom line is that for the most part when you're in those you know up to 120 fps uh, uh sort of areas the limitating, limitating factor is not the GPU, but rather the fact that it's using a Ryzen 3000 based CPU. But this thing is just running 4K60 easily, everything maxed. You've got access to um, DLSS. You've got high-end ray tracing. You've also got DLSS3. It, it's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. Um, jo John, you're not really uh, mourning the loss of Stadia right well okay that that's a tricky one because you know i i don't like i never liked stadia but i don't like people losing their jobs either so i it's kind of a bittersweet thing right it's more that i'm happy that that specific model for cloud gaming is what failed right more than the project itself it's more that it's it's about that because stadia was all about you buy games within our service and you pay to use the service and it's all cloud all the time. The GeForce Now product, I think, is far more appealing to the point where I could actually see myself enjoying it in select instances because it's basically like, hey, you own all these games already on PC locally, but what if you wanted to play those games via the cloud on another device when traveling or something like that? You can do that. You just pick up your Steam game, I guess, and continue playing from where you were, right? Like cross saves and everything, that's all the same, right? So it's just, you're just playing on a different device temporarily, and then eventually you go back to your PC and you're on local hardware again. That stuff is great. Or also I thought about this, um, like in the case of like, if you have like a child, like my son or whatever, if you, if he wanted to play a game on my account on like a, his laptop or something, which is much lower spec, uh, GeForce Now could actually make that happen, right? A in a way that wouldn't otherwise be feasible without using like my PC. Uh, so this is what I like. It's this, you're still, you're buying these games like you might normally on a PC store, but if you want, you can actually stream them out to another device and it's all kind of connected. Streaming is optional. It's it's a value add rather than the key focus. And that's the big difference, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the other thing which uh, which which was always a, a problem with uh, streaming systems. And Stadia kind of embraced it wholeheartedly, which was the concept that you're buying games at pretty much full price, although they did do massive discount offers with their subscription. Um, but yes, ultimately, you're buying something which has no... Tan it's, it's not tangible at all and can be taken away from you at any point. And fair dues to uh, to Stadia, they did actually refund me for every game that I bought on it. <laughs> um, but yes, that's something that um, uh, GeForce Now 4080 um, or GeForce Now generally sidesteps, right? Because you're buying the games as you would on any standard storefront. 
which is good. Secondly, you know, the other thing was always the latency promise. Uh, astonishingly, and I still don't know how they've done it. I mean, this was solved with GeForce 3080 tier, where, you know, basically the lag was indistinguishable from a local console. And in the case of select titles, was actually more responsive than an Xbox Series X. Um, they've now got a 240 frames per second streaming option where um, full end-to-end -end latency is down to 30 milliseconds. This was the claim that um, NVIDIA made. We actually, well, I say we, I asked Tom because he's the, the latency measurement expert and he's got a 360 hertz screen to wow. <laughs> to look at it and verify it. And it's been verified. So, you know, basically image quality, not quite there, but it's very, very, very close. And it's doing 4K 120. How, how's the uh, frame um, persistence? Is it, have they solved I noticed the problem yet? If you are running with VSync off, which essentially seems to deliver frames to the screen as and when they're done and uh, doesn't really respect any kind of consistency, it's it's very noticeable if you're using a joypad and you're doing those kind of panning motions. Right, yeah. um, less noticeable if you're using a mouse simply because of the more right. jittery nature of sure. using a mouse. If you turn on VSync, it's much better, but it's still not quite perfect. So yeah, that's 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 kind of like the last technical challenge, uh, I think. I think. And I think so. a lot of people won't notice it, so, but I do. Yeah. So, so this is like basically they're sending you a feed in a container that is 240 hertz. So like, yeah, I don't or know, 120 or 60. And it's being V-synced on your display. And that's the thing you're seeing. You're seeing the V-sync of the unevenness of the frames. It's, or is it the, actually something else? The stream is, uh, uh, well, essentially at the server side, if V-sync is off, um, the encoder just grabs the latest frame, right? The latest complete frame. It doesn't uh, mm -hmm. consider pacing them at an even rate. Um, okay. Whereas if you turn on VSync within the game on the server, it does seem to introduce some kind of consistent pacing, but I suspect it will come at the cost of latency. I mm -hmm. couldn't really tell it. the difference, but then again, I'm not a competitive esports type. Yeah, and that, and that, in that case, if you're doing like 120, I think it would probably be worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe not for 60, but for 120, I imagine 100%. It is to the point now. I mean, 3080 did most of the legwork in terms of um, solving latency. I can't believe they've done it. I can't understand how it's done, but the results are borne out. Now, obviously, there are still a whole bunch of caveats to attach to this, which is that um, we test these systems on an internet connection that is entirely dedicated to this, the, the system because we want to test the system not the quality of our connection when dealing with multiple tasks running on it simultaneously. But, you know, when you get to gigabit um, internet, as I've got now, it, it you can run multiple things at the same time. It doesn't seem to be that much of an issue. Mm. So, you know, I'm going to go into a lot more depth on this in a, in a bespoke video. Mm. Um, because I think it's a bit of a milestone. 3080 was as well, but this basically gives you so much GPU power that it is is quite remarkable, and you get frame generation. And I think there are some interesting tests to do there, bearing in mind the latency implications. Um, and you get you know state of the art ray tracing and rasterization performance. It's it's quite phenomenal. But yes, interesting Gosh. to see that you know when when one system fails, another one continues to, to to do rather well. I doubt it's you know got the same level of corporate aspiration as 
Google ad for Stadia, but it's there. It's mm-hmm. a thing, and it's a technical masterpiece, in my opinion. It just kind of hit me how far mm-hmm. we've 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 come or strayed, if you will, from like the old Atari twenty six hundred, where you're literally racing the the beam, the electron beam in a CRT. So now we're like generating frames and then sending them out over the internet in these containers, and it's like. <laughs> There's so much obfuscation between the actual calculations to what the final picture ends up being. It's and that's not even getting into like just rendering pipelines in general, right? Which add extra layers of complexity. It's like it's so different yeah. from where we started. It's it's yeah. It's and Alex, I, cool. I think it comes with a shader butler. Oh, yeah, because that's the one um, thing. I think what happens is that if somebody else on your blade has played through a game, the the shaders are cached. Um, but it's, it seems to be, I was on a preview server, right? And it seems to be a bit, uh, uh, spotty. So, you know, there are certain games, you know, the Ghost Runner demo, for example, where we know there's a massive latency spike, uh, stutter spike right at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't there when I tested it. Uh, secondly, um, I went into Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition and went to the Tega, you know, the, um, the, the train yep. scene that we use. Uh, that was stuttering quite badly. Hmm. Um, ah, so, that's weird. But only once. <laughs> so, okay. So you know, maybe the you know maybe they are using the server infrastructure to actually do the caching, which is an interesting solution to that. I'm I'm just huh. picturing the shader butler as as Jeeves of Ask Jeeves. <laughs> yeah, fame, absolutely. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. he's just there to mm-hmm. cache your shaders for you as you like, sir. Yeah, Stephen Fry was a great Jeeves. <laughs> Back in Twice. the day. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to the next news topic. Uh, just a quick one, this, because we're not happy about it, but what can we say? Um, there was a leak this week of the Suicide Squad, uh, the new Rocksteady game. We're hu- well, we, we were hugely excited about it. I guess we still are hugely excited about it. But there are now big asterisks mm. in, in play, right, John? A battle pass. Well, What's this about? Apparently there has been this asterisk for a while where... Uh, it has been known that this is a games as a service game. It's just that right. somehow I, I didn't pay close enough attention to notice that. So this whole thing with battle pass and games as a service, it sure kind of came as a little bit of a shock to me this week when I realized that like, Oh wait, that's what this is. I didn't expect that from Rocksteady is all I will say on that. Right? Like this is, this is something I was really hoping for just a tight single player experience because quite frankly, I think games as a service has become sort of this poisonous well for developers and publishers, I guess. If you succeed with a service game, you stand to make a lot of money. But I think it's been pretty clear by now that actually making a successful service game is exceptionally difficult. And most of them do not succeed. And the thing about it feels like a failed game as a service can have a much more significant financial impact on said company than just, you know, a moderately or unsuccessful single player experience might. You're I talking Avengers? What's Avengers or Anthem or Anthem Avengers. Um, and there's plenty of others. If we actually dig in there, it's, this does not always work out. And there's only the problem. There's only enough room for an X number of these games as a service, right. To be sustainable because the people that play these games that like that type of game, they're not going to play them all. They're going to gravitate towards the ones they like. And due to the nature of what a service game is, they're probably going to stick with it for a long time if it's good. Uh, so I just, 
I feel like this is such a such a bad idea for them and the whole marketing around it and like the suicide squad even have that appeal i mean crystal had the avengers right and it completely just didn't they they didn't pull it off and i liked aspects of that game but the the service aspect of it absolutely ruined the game because it just turned everything into these repetitive sort of quests that just watered down the entire experience to the point where it kind of lost itself we don't want that again (laughs) Yeah, plus there was the whole Thor's helmet <laughs> debacle this week. Oh, where, uh, what was that? Yeah, it was basically a costume, uh, a variant of Thor. I think it was an MCU costume with a helmet mm-hmm. that, w- that was uh, put out, and they've put out a variant without the helmet, oh, which no. is otherwise exactly the same, and they're charging more money for it. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, this is the thing, right? When you get these uh, sort of irregularities in MTX and, and whatnot, that becomes yeah. the headline yeah. rather than whether the game is any good or not. That's the piece so, popping up. So, from yeah. a development side of this, I'm always worried about these Battle Pass mm-hmm. games and um, or these MTX games because what it means is it like it requires a lot of transformational time, money, and yeah. energy into a into a into a developer that hadn't done that before, yep. and maybe he's not playing to their strengths. So you had Halo most recently, or you have um, my goodness, the Avengers game or Anthem, where the developer that made games that were on release were like the finished product and then there might have been dlcs after the fact to expand on that product some of these games also had multiplayer in the past before but they weren't gaas or gaas multiplayer games and then when they're kind of put in there tacked on and i like i i can't even imagine one where it's actually worked really well everyone's really pushing for this destiny model but destiny was like a game that was planned for such a long period of time and iterated on till Destiny 2. You know, Destiny 1 wasn't as successful as Destiny 2, necessarily. Uh, so I feel like it is kind of like this square thing going in a round hole for certain developers, and it doesn't fit their MO, let alone their previous development style. And in the case here, I'm really worried about it because this is the game they've been working on for so long since That's their last one. That's it, right? And there's a lot riding on it. Kind of Bioware also a little bit similar situation there to a certain degree but not as they had at least multiple projects going multiple studios but this is rocksteady and if this doesn't do well i'm really worried yeah, about i don't them. understand uh, and i don't understand studio. the left turn on that either because i mean unless that was what they really wanted to do but it this has been in development for so long and it does feel like this this might be part of the reason at least where they had to shift they were known for making these single player games and now they had to shift into making this thing that's a big ask of these companies uh, and I, if if it doesn't succeed, what then? Will yeah. will they Very will they not survive it? I, I wonder. I I'm actually baffled that Gotham Knights was not the games as a service game. That's the one that seems like that's a single player game <laughs> yeah. that feels like a service game, right? And, and <laughs> it does. And I the intro to it. I figured does. that was the service game and then Suicide Squad was the game that I was waiting for that would be a single player thing. And that's not to say this won't have that, but I guess the key here is can they still deliver a good single player experience for the people that do not want the service stuff? If they can do that, then that's wonderful. But there it's just the risk of this. All this battle pass stuff for me it's never worked outside of I admit I I did enjoy Destiny initially. 
when Destiny launched, it did have problems, but those problems actually made the game more endearing because it felt like you're on this weird adventure of nonsense and weren't sure where, where they were going with it. But once they mm-hmm. figured it out, it became much more pedestrian, I would say. Uh, and now it feels like games of the service is figured out. It's just, this is battle pass. This is how these things work. And it's all this predictable hamster wheel stuff, uh, rather than exciting. The last, I guess the last one that is kind of a service game that actually made me excited. And I still love it is sea of thieves, uh, because that actually, and again, that got hit with complaints of not enough to do, but, uh, that actually did create that feeling of going on an adventure. It was really cool. Um, so but these ones that come out that feel all cynical with these, you see, you, you know, the menu, right? You see that menu where it's got like four characters lined up and your character is larger oh than the other three. And they're all just standing there doing idle animations. And you got all these menus about all your character stats and battle passes and the next mission. It's just, there's a very specific archetype for those menus that you just see over and over and over again. And as soon as you see it, you're like, well, I know what this is. And it's, uh, it's never good for us. Now, people that love that stuff, maybe they'll be happy, but we'll see. Let's found off the news with a story that is about uh, a single-player experience, and it's the Callisto Protocol. Uh, there's news that uh, the holding company are, are not particularly happy with uh, the Craft sales one. results of um, of the Callisto Protocol. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There was a lot of controversy and uh, dissent in opinion about the quality of the game at launch, Let's put aside the technical issues at the moment, because, uh, you know, PC in particular, wow. But, you know, PlayStation 5, uh, even Xbox Series X, it was pretty good stuff, right, John? Yeah, though the Xbox, again, I think the Xbox version wasn't as good, and that, you know, that I'm sure that affected opinions on it, right? I guess in the end, this game ended up being quite uh, divisive, because leading up to it, it was kind of, you did get the feeling they were pitching this as like a spiritual successor to dead space, especially considering the related talents working on it. But in the end, it's not actually a game that's very much like dead space at all. Conceptually in terms of themes, I suppose to a degree, but the actual moment to moment gameplay, it's more of an action game than the typical slow survival horror. And if you don't jive with that whole melee system, then you're probably not going to have a great time. Uh, and I think it just, uh, it's, it's an interesting game in that regard, but I think just launching a new IP, uh, doing it late in the year, like they did, uh, launching with all those technical issues, you know, it being something that's not quite like the thing that people thought it would be, uh, all these things come together to just create a situation that is very difficult. And I think the expectations were a bit too high for that considering but i think i hope you never know what these companies or actually you tend to but the thing is is when you launch something like this if you really want it to find success you've got to continue to nurture it even with these stumbles and yeah it's a lot of money i'm sure they invested but i feel like it would be a waste if they were to just say well that failed and then close everything right rather than saying all right let's step back and see what we did because we did a lot right here but some things didn't work out. What can we do to actually really make this work better? Uh, because I would argue like, you know, Dead Space 1, while very good and beloved, Dead Space 2 is the one that was sort of like the critical mass hit, right? Like that really caught people. It's also the same with something like Mass Effect 2. 
Uh, even though I also kind of prefer yeah, right? the first one myself, but most people <laughs> prefer two. And again, it was like, well, you know, that was at least a hit right away. But I just feel like they they need to nurture this stuff and and try to, to let this go. And even if they don't continue Callisto Protocol as a series, these guys clearly have a lot of talent, and I want to see them continue. And I hope that they get the funding they need to do so. Mm. Yeah, looking at the news stories there, there were expectations that they'd shift 5 million copies and they think it's going to be challenging to get two. Uh, but, you know, I don't think you can launch a new IP and and expect to produce figures uh, as good as like yeah. Resident Evil Village. It seems unrealistic. And ultimately, you've, you know, it's very rare for a new IP to actually hit straight from the off i guess the question is what they can do going forward whether they continue to invest in uh, the callisto protocol to build up that goodwill to build up the ip to make the game better or whether to simply plow on straight into a sequel um regardless or yeah, whether to have a rethink yeah i think um the reason i put this on the docket uh, john is that you know you're a firm advocate for the game whereas a lot of people just don't don't seem to get on with it whatsoever. I kind of saw this coming from a mile away though, right? Like even if it had turned out better, it's just, this is such a brutal time period for games. And I think we're kind of just heading in a very dangerous direction where to get the amount of money necessary to make these types of games and the amount of time is so high now, it's it's difficult to justify investing in this. But then you have the other risk is if you're just doing the same old, same old or games as a service, or you're like Ubisoft is regurgitating things, then you get into your own trouble, a different can of worms on that. And it's just, it seems like getting a hit is pretty darn difficult these days. And the amount of work it mm-hmm. takes before you know whether you have a hit or not, and the amount of money is so ridiculously high. Uh, I don't know. It, it worries me. Okay, so let's move on to supporter Q&A. This is the final part of the show where every week we field a bunch of questions put to us by supporters on the DF Supporter Program. So yeah, if you want to get involved, join the Supporter Program. It's awesome. Uh, first question, uh, one for John. This one's from Dirk Hodderin. Oh. One for John, although I think Alex, or indeed all of us, are equally qualified to answer this one. Why did Unreal Engine 3 games have that weird wet look like every surface has been laminated? Uh, John, you want to have a go at this one? I mean, that was just kind of uh, where we were with... That was when we were shifting to more modern rendering pipelines, right? With like... And shaders were being integrated into things. and But the lighting wasn't there yet, I would say, right? Yeah. Like they, I, uh, I, I mean, I have a pretty good idea why. <laughs> go like, ahead. So John's, John's just describing like shift to new modern techniques, normal maps. Mm-hmm. So everything, every surface is getting a normal map, but the lighting that's being fed yes, to it is like what John is saying. It is the way, un, so Unreal 3, I actually really disliked yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, same. <laughs> but one reason why I disliked it is because their initial showing for it was light maps, um, real-time directional shadows, and then also like a good baked lighting system. They ended up throwing out almost all of that at some point during Gears War th- Gears of War One's development cycle, and they ended up doing almost no real direct lighting in the games. So, when you look at Marcus Phoenix, Gears of War One, or any of those early gear, any of those early Unreal titles, the thing that's lighting them is not like a direct light usually, but it's like a, each character would get like a spherical harmonic on them, and it would 
taken the contribution of a number of light sources and then try and light the model. That gives zero directionality yeah. to any of the lighting in the game. And every edge of the character model glows like crazy. And then the shadow doesn't even line up anymore. If you know, if you play Gears of War, you'll see that the shadow, like depending upon where you are on the map, it just like moves around. The character it has no bearing on like the real sun direction or anything like that. It's awful. Um, and almost every game up until they kind of revitalized Unreal Engine uh, at that point in time had this look. There are some occasional titles that didn't have it because they went their own rendering route. Like if you play something like, actually, I can't. I'm trying to think of any of the early games that don't have it. <laughs> they, almost, they almost, they almost all do. What, what? About Borderlands? Oh well, yeah, that one. Well, if you look at the lighting model there, it doesn't. It's very different. So they did something very different no, at that th- point in time. Also, it doesn't use like normal shading. I think it's this interim um, step, Alex, where they didn't yeah. yet have a really good solution for lighting. Whereas if you look back at older games, they they just kind of baked everything out, right? Light maps were were common, yeah. and without the need to like light these like normal maps and bump maps and all this kind of stuff it was uh it yeah. didn't fall into the it was all this much, right? it was just as, exactly yeah. so uh it's it's a it's a that's curious why one. Uh, the unreal uh, engine three games that aged the best were the ones that found novel solutions to lighting like mirror's edge where like well we're just gonna pre-compute all of this stuff and and it's gonna <laughs> look great it's completely static but it looks great and i I think this push towards this desire for real-time lighting uh, ended up, it was too early for it. Like, these were steps that had to be made, but everybody wanted to have, like, dynamic light sourcing everywhere. And it just wasn't time yet for that. Not that they all had dynamic lighting, you know, but still. Uh, Yeah. It's a step that had to be made, though. What about Arkham Knight? Where does that sit? Oh, that's, that's That's like, they totally ripped out. It's way... yeah, it's like the deferred rendering pipelines already in at that point in time. Um, yeah, there's so many other things. They actually use direct lighting in that game quite often, unlike the early Gears games where it's pretty hard to find any light other than your muzzle flash that is a direct light. In those <laughs> and games, then we usually. got, I mean, with uh, Gears 3, that's where they introduced the light mass system that was really common with Unreal, right? And that did yeah. help a lot in terms of like pre-calculated lighting, I would say. Yeah, and that... Then they also mixed it with yeah, real-time exactly. shadows, which is which is something that was not at all in Gears 1 or Gears it, 2. It's really like this, that first so. five or four or five years of Unreal 3 that was pretty dire, where they, did, they didn't have mm-hmm. solutions to those problems yet. And, like, everything was glow in the dark. Like, it was all being lit by, like, uh, like a white cube map or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it is so... I Like, oh, I just went for the BF3 video. I did load up Area 51 Black Sight because John mentioned <laughs> it in the video. And it was just hilarious to look at how that game looks. There's some interesting things in there, but, man, it is Unreal Engine 3-looking game. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's move on to the next question from Tangan86. I often find that my CPU is bottlenecking my 4090, even at 4K when using RT. Uh, what are your recommendations regarding CPUs for RT and CPU-heavy games like Spider-Man, Cyberpunk, and Callisto Protocol? Uh, should you prioritize single-thread performance, cache, and or number of cores? Uh, I'll go to you in a minute on that one, Alex, but I think my answer to the, uh, to the, to the final part of that question is just yes. it does seem to be the case that um, uh, there are limited returns beyond eight cores and so you do have uh, processors um, like well like the new intel ones which essentially target eight performance cores and the 5800 x3d which has that plus all of the cache Um, 
so yeah but it's wow that's that's a kind of interesting question isn't it what do you make of it uh well i don't know what see the the cp sagan you didn't list your cpu here so i don't know what you have um but in this case it's such a this is such a problem where depending upon the game you can see really good returns for your cpu i actually think spider-man's one of the more justified like at this point in time after all the updates there's still some maybe some work that could have been done but it feels a lot more justified when you then when you look at callisto protocol the witcher 3 or a number of other titles yeah there's there's (laughs) just profound cpu problems there whereas spider-man is cpu heavy but you kind of have an idea of what the workload is and it is kind of justified yeah and you also have scalable settings there so you can like these other games just don't allow you to scale the settings other than arbitrary on and off uh, yeah. you know, buttons, which is really bad. Uh, in Spider-Man, you have the ability to change that. So I feel like here there's actually no good way to um, prepare your PC other than I would say eight cores, the fastest single thread performance you can get. And look at that over an average of a number of games, not just... Like that's why I'm always a little bit worried about the the V cache, 3D V cache stuff because it's it doesn't pan out over all games always, and uh, so um, I guess we got to wait to see what, when those new processors come out and see like what the scaling is there. But I don't think as a gamer, if you're just using games on your PC, you need like that 13900K is really great or KS and stuff. But like the the models below it also with less E cores are also really good. So yeah that's how yeah. i feel mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it's challenging because there are game engines that you know basically n-way threaded as many threads as as they've got the game will utilize but mm. then there are games that you know basically it's all about single core performance then there's games that seem to basically weren't particularly well cache op- optimized and the x3d stuff does really well there so mm-hmm. you know that's why my answer to that last bit of the question is just yes uh, because it's it, every every game has got a, a particular requirement, it seems. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from Fer, Ferdifant. Ferdifant. Hi, D, hi, DF, hi, DF humans. <laughs> you don't know. I'm a cybernetic organism. You don't see the lower half of my body too often. It's just like wheels, actually. <laughs> this question might be a little silly. Since it has become quite cold in my region... Uh, I try not to heat as much as I've noticed that after prolonged gaming sessions on my PC or current gen consoles, I can go to bed without feeling the chill as much. I have a small room. So the question is, I put this one in because I know you've got a good answer for it, John, by the way. Have you ever noticed the heat output of your devices to be affecting your room climate in an especially positive or negative way? And how do you place your devices so you won't be affected or even benefit from the effect? In my case, I've just moved my gaming devices as close to my bed as possible to to survive the coming winter nights. I love your content and hope you're not freezing. Uh, wow. I have the opposite problem. Yeah. Uh, All all the hardware in my room, these monitors, uh, the PC itself, everything, they generate so much heat that it raises the room temperature significantly. In the winter, I can usually, unless it's over under a certain level, I can pretty much just turn the heaters off in this room because the hardware keeps mm-hmm. it warm. In the summer, though, I have I have to use air conditioning just in this room to survive because it increases the temperature of the room so much compared to the rest of the house. Uh, and that also means that in the summer, I try to minimize when I use certain devices. Like if I'm capturing on my TV, 
I just turn off the PC and all the monitors. Or if I'm just doing something on there, I'll just use the monitors I need. You know, I'll remove any overclocking that I've done and try to keep the PC running as cool as possible to reduce the amount of hot air it spits out. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, I definitely take a lot of those precautions. Mm-hmm. Alex? Uh, I have the exact same issue as John, where in the winter, this room that I'm currently in doesn't need as much heating. I mean, I could also still turn it on because it's not like I'm constantly leaving on my devices while a game's rendering. Or, or even though, like a lot of the time is like scripting and um, working in Premiere, where the Premiere work itself isn't too heavy on like the ambient output of the thing. But as soon as you start uh, doing exports or, you know, crunching, then that's when it happens. Uh, but th- that's just winter. But during the summer, with the way everything is here, I have to close the door to get a good like audio ambience in here. Um, and then all of a sudden the PC just, just like, oh my God, it gets so hot. The room with like, about, if I open the window too, since I'm on the top floor of a German building, there's no such thing as air conditioning, of course. And all the heat rises. So I'm on the top floor here and it's like, Oh my God, I really would love to do an ambient temperature check in here during the summer. I think it would get be way hotter than it is outside usually, actually. So uh, for, for top floor, do you actually mean penthouse suite? Uh, no, not penthouse <laughs> because a lot of old, <laughs> old German buildings don't have penthouse, but they have the floor above the attic is the last place you live in. Uh, <laughs> it was only added on after the plaque. Uh, not penthouse suite. Uh, no, sadly. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from uh, Crazy Joe. The A in crazy is a four. So this is like, <laughs> you know, hardcore Hacking. stuff. Um, let's go on to the question. Let's say you have a 120 hertz TV slash monitor and you lock your games to 60 FPS for, for a stable experience. You want to achieve the best possible experience in terms of smoothness, latency and stability. Equally important. In your opinion, what is the best, best way to achieve these goals? Activate the VRR feature of your TV slash monitor. So it runs at 60 hertz, basically or let it run at 120 hertz and enable vSync with a frame rate cap at 60 fps. Kind of like a half-rate refresh vSync found on consoles. Thank you. Uh, No, thank you, Crazy Joe. Um, Alex, this is an interesting PC-style question, right? Because I think the answer is to basically cap cap frame rate, um, but with remain within the VRR window and not use vSync. Yeah, that's, that's the answer to this. Um, and it's going to be per game basis at this point, unless you're willing to dial in your settings. But for example, like, I don't know, just like your modern AAA game, use RTSS and or uh, any of its other alternatives that could possibly do it better or the NVIDIA control panel or in the game itself. Usually the game's the best for the latency uh, thing and cap it at, like, say, 86 or 80 or 90, and then let VRR take care of any fluctuations below that if you're not going to be hitting 120. I think doing half-rate v- half rate V-Sync uh, is, uh, well, just, there's no really reason for you to be doing it is, is based on what I'm seeing here. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see a good reason for it. What about the console thing, John? What I'm saying about? is, like, uh, on Xbox, you can choose to output at 120 hertz all the time. And I'm saying, yeah. and also on PC, I'm saying it's best to match your refresh rate to your top frame rate, uh, even if you're using VR. Like, if you're playing on PC and you can, you're hitting, like, 90 to 120, then, yeah, you want 120 with VRR, and that's the way to go. But if you have, like, a game where the max is 60 and it still can dip below that, I still think going to a 60 hertz container is better than a 120 hertz container because you get that 
I complain about it a lot, but the double image effect that drives me nuts. And even though flat panels tend to have lots of persistence blur, uh, so it kind of hides it, it still gives a more streaky... An, I, I don't like the way it looks, basically. It blurs the image more. And mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I definitely recommend sort of picking your refresh rate based on the type of content you're playing because it definitely makes a difference. Okay. Yeah. Uh, final question here from uh, Kimo Sabi uh, with various capital letters dotted throughout his hacker alias there. <laughs> I'm just reminded of the uh, the TV version of Die Hard. Uh, oh, I haven't <laughs> seen that. It's uh, Yupikaye Kimo Sabi. <laughs> anyway uh the, the the question really enjoyed your battlefield 3 video this week thank you uh always solid work after hearing a short story about tom what was your most memorable show you attended doesn't have to be good or bad just the one you remember best so yeah in the in the battlefield 3 video we were talking about how tom went to see battlefield 4 before the consoles were out yeah. we had no idea what the hdmi capabilities of these consoles were whether there was uh, content protection on it as per ps3 so we basically sent tom to dice in sweden armed with a complete standalone pc multiple capture devices, multiple HTCP strippers, and uh, hoped for the best. And it actually turned out that he didn't need any of that. The, the HDMIs were clean. But anyway, uh, interesting question about our most memorable show. I was at the um, E3, which had the Konami disaster uh, event, oh, in no. which, which I think, uh, John, you and Audi did a, a kind of uh, yeah. commentary of, of that. Exactly. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, yeah, but that, that was also the E3 where, you know, we just um, innocently attended the Xbox 360 uh, media briefing. Then at the end, they just said, yes, and everybody here is going to get a, a, a new Xbox 360 Slim. It's like, okay. Mm -hmm. And they did actually make good on that promise. It wasn't just like the Americans. Everybody that was there got one. That was kind of memorable. Um, and it's, in fact, the 360 that I used for those recent retro time capsules. Uh, John, favorite event? Oh my the one you remember the most? Oh, man. It's got to be E3 2019. That was one of the best. Just so many things happened. Like, too many stories to share here, but just lots of random wild stuff getting in there uh <laughs> like well there there was some dinners that i attended with with different groups and and some of the stories that came out of those dinners and some of the people that i was getting a chance to sit down with and talk to are things where i if you look back and you think gee like could i foresee myself in this situation like 10 years ago the answer would be definitely not uh, so I don't want to get into details of what they were, but it was, uh, there was some fun stories there that I did not expect. And I, I still remember a lot, but I will say, I also got, uh, stuff I can say is, uh, it was extremely <laughs> enjoyable trying to talk with the, uh, uh, creator of Tetris, Alexei. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. That was, that was really fun because when we first met up with him, uh, he had the grumpiest expression on his face. It looked like he wanted to be anywhere else, but there. And then we get outside and uh, we just started talking about stuff. And Audie was there with me and he brought up how his mom was like Norway's champion, Tetris champion of like 1991 or something like that. So, so, something from back then. And uh, that completely made him like light up with excitement. And, you know, just talking about that era again, watching him sort of come alive. And he would just say... He said so many things in that interview and you could tell the PR was like looking at each other like, uh, 
this is this is weird Cause especially when we asked him what his favorite tetris was and uh his response was unexpected he he was kind of like like i i love the tetris with the little uh uh with the people shaped as as the tetris blocks and then you know they kind of come together and it's like wait are you talking about like that? erotic okay. tetris or something here or? <laughs> so uh yeah fun stuff there but uh since you were talking about the studio visit with tom though uh i think the the studio visit that i enjoyed most was actually when i got to visit those guys in Runcorn that did onrush because that was pretty decent right? because those guys i've never been in a studio that was just that open of just like you can see anything you want talk to anyone look at everything in the game we will show you everything and that was an absolute blast uh and mm -hmm. filming that whole thing and alas i got to i also got to see the uh, pc version which never actually shipped but it was looking really nice which is a shame <laughs> i got canceled but that was a really fun trip and those guys were just awesome up there so alex i'm just uh thinking back to 2018 games oh <laughs> Yeah, with you. Where we had a lot of fun back then. We did, and uh, we sat down for the uh, NVIDIA RTX 2000 launch, and mm. uh, I just remember looking at you agog. You were, you were literally, <laughs> your jaw was That open. was your first uh, conference thing, Alex. <laughs> I remember that. It was completely, and I haven't been at many since because, you know, I got hired at DF, oh, no. and then uh, this thing called pandemic. COVID. Uh, <laughs> pandemic. So uh, we haven't gone back then, but that was that was so much fun being there with you, Rich. I mean, the fact that Rich also came out was great due to the due to the NVIDIA launch, essentially, at that point. Because yeah, like, essentially, the normal yeah. day stuff, that yeah, was like, you know, we could, John and I could have covered that other stuff. T really well, typically, like, when there's a new uh, GPU launch, they have these things called Editor's Days. So they don't really do them so much now, where um, they do the presentation to the public, then you get a deep dive behind the scenes. So that's the main reason I was there, so I could comment a bit more authoritatively about the new products when, when we actually got them for review. But um, yeah, that was that was fun because it was the three of us there, and it was uh, really great stuff. And, it was awesome. Uh, it was it was really interesting seeing you interact with all of the uh, all of the developers working on raid facing games at the time, and mm -hmm. also you know it's like oh look over there there's Steve from Gamers Nexus, which uh, I think you were a bit starstruck as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually walk up to him that day and say hi. I also said hi to Ryan Shrout, uh, who didn't really remember me when I met him years later. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> <I don't. laughs> but it's okay. I'm easy to forget. And then who else did I see that day for the first time? And I was like. Oh yeah! Oh, that's when we first. That's when I also first met uh, uh, Tap, Tom Peterson. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and that was great because he was working for Nvidia back then. And, and the four A guys, or guy, and the four A guys, yeah. or guy. Yeah, that was Ben Archer there, mm -hmm. uh, which was also really awesome. Also, 2019 with John because I was just chilling with John that time uh when we went to gamescom and i of course i had the embarrassing story where i forgot oh. to register as press beforehand <laughs> yeah i think we can tell yeah. that now it's been uh, that was a yeah it's been enough we time from the hotel and i was driving my car and we parked in the gamescom parking lot and we were literally <laughs> across the street walking up to the gamescom like entrance <laughs> And then I was like, "All right, get your uh, your registrations lanyard out. out. What, get get this thing yeah. out because we got to go show it to the people at the desk." And you're like, "What do you mean?" And I was like, "What do you mean? What do you mean?" It's like, like the thing, the registration that you had to do to come. And he's like, "Uh, I, I, A little bit I didn't do that." And I was just like, "Uh oh." <laughs> 
but the, 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 the moral of the story is that somehow it all worked out. Everything was fine. And John and I had like one that of the best really times. Uh, and the people too. were very hopeful people. at the front desk. They helped us sort that really well. So everything turned out great in the so end. Nice. So it was no problem. <laughs> did did it no help problem. that you can speak fluent German? Oh, I'm sure it, did. It, it It definitely helped along with a little bit of... Uh, he, winking he did, he did the, Al- the, the Alex charm <laughs> came out in full force. Oh, really? I might, I might have charmed the a first time bit I experienced okay. the full brunt of Alex charm in action. <laughs> I was in awe. I was starstruck. Just like, my God, this is this is incredible. Yeah, I'm interested it was, it was in uh, in your sort of reminiscences about the uh, Series X. Oh, oh, yeah, John. The, 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 we went. Oh, to you know Microsoft what? Okay, March 2020. That was probably one of the coolest trip, I would say, in the end. Uh, because man, that was, they really, uh, showed a lot of cool stuff there and just seeing a new console for the first time before most people had seen it. I think the most memorable part there for me has to be when we were just before dinner on that, on the main day, uh, they come into the room and I can't remember who it was, but she had her handbag walked up to us and we were, oh, yeah, that was we were actually talking to Phil at the time about stuff. And he's like, Oh, this, this is good. And she, we turned around and she pulls out this white rectangular console out of the bag and says, so this is the uh, Xbox series S. And this was like months before the thing would be revealed. Right. Yeah. At, at least six months, at least six months. And you know, during that six months, then uh, there were rumors flying everywhere that people wanted us to comment on. <laughs> And we're just like, you know, we can't say anything, but it was just, you know, this is like, oh my gosh, that was the most, I, that was the longest sort of embargo or kind of thing yep. that I think I've ever experienced where it was like, we, yeah, the embargo had no date on it. Yeah. It was just the a- ND, the, N- <laughs> the NDA had no date. Actually it did. I think it was like the end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> or Exactly. It was something so, like that. So that, but that, but that was basically, you know, the reveal of the Xbox Series S to us was so good that we were saying that they should do it in the event, whatever yeah, launch right. event they had. But basically, it was like, you know, reach into the handbag, bring out an Xbox Series S. And um, it was like, wow. And I, I instantly fell in love with it just because of that reveal, but just because it was... Um, it was an actual console, right? Yeah. Because, you know, obviously with the form factors of the machines being so outsized, there is the sense that consoles aren't what they once were, which was, you know, the ultimate expression of a lean, um, efficient uh, device. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was never about best of the best hardware back in the day, right? It was about, you know, basically a mass market device. And that's exactly what Series S is. And I, I loved it as soon as I saw it. And I thought, wow, this is this is this is really was, good. That, that, and that reveal, effective. the handbag reveal, was, was that was great. really effective. That was that was pretty. Fun. I, I, yeah, I, do, I do also look back at that event for uh, potentially throwing you under the bus there by uh, saying over dinner to Phil that you weren't a big fan of Game Pass. Oh, I think. And to, I think. And to, <laughs> and to, and to, and to be fair to Phil, and to be fair to Phil, he basically said, "Give give me five minutes with John. Let's let's talk Game Pass." Well, I mean, to be fair, I I use Game Pass more in 2022 than I ever had before. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I definitely did make use of it now, but even <laughs> if, but yeah, no, it, it was fun chatting with him about that stuff. And he, he, he wanted to reassure you your, your physical games wouldn't be taken away from you. Oh yeah. Which I think <laughs> come to your house and burn your collection. <laughs> <Yeah>. Microsoft. 
Yeah, it turned, his knowledge on classic gaming turned out to be more impressive it's, and vast astonishing. than I expected. And I was like, wow, okay, you really know what you're talking about. And we had good chats about that stuff. And that, that was also the night when I got to, to chat uh, about SSX and the Dreamcast version being made. You know, if you mm -hmm. recall that. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was with Kate Rayner, actually. Uh, That's right. Because mm -hmm. he had worked on... S the, all the SSX games back in the day. That's and, I didn't know she worked. Yeah, that. helped like cool. architect all the the engine technology behind them, and you know, so we were talking about that initial Dreamcast version that was canceled, uh, which was different. the The PS2 version uses like Bezier curves to generate the terrain to make those really smooth slopes, and they were doing like a more traditional method on Dreamcast, but. Uh, that ended up not getting that far, I guess, and it just became a PS2 launch title, and they kind of pushed forward from there. And uh, I gathered that, you know, talking about SSX Tricky then and some of the changes, it just seems like some of the changes just kind of happened due to uh, the need to target multiple platforms more than anything else. Yeah, That was the triple head yeah. one, right? GameCube, Xbox. Yeah, yeah, which I've always thought was interesting because they they made the FOV narrower and tricky and changed it all of the way the particles and lighting and effects work. So it looks a little bit less, it looks less good to my eye uh, than the original SSX. So, but mm -hmm. I think it's just more platform agnostic. So it was easier to run, but yeah, so many good times from back then. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Kimasabi, you've got a wealth of, of answers to that particular question, but I'm sure there are many, many more. I mean, I was at both of the Sega New Challenge conferences where they revealed the uh, I'm envious of that one. That's uh, that's amazing. That's cool. The, the problem is it was so long ago that many of the details, just Fuzzy. I've just completely forgotten about them. I do remember going into the Sega building and it's like, okay, there's the architect of the Dreamcast hardware. Didn't, uh, it's like, wow. didn't you guys like experience Yuji Naka like, getting very angry at like a French journalist or something? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, basically some uh, preview materials for Sonic Adventure had been leaked, and the guy who whose publication leaked them was in the room, and yeah, he wasn't happy about that. <laughs> oh gosh! Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was a pretty fantastic. Uh, that was a pretty fantastic series of events there. Um, Quite very <laughs> exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's it. I think that's the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, please do uh, like, subscribe, share, ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications. As always, no guarantees there. Um, and DF supports a program. Um, <laughs> yes, please do uh, support us. If you like what we do, get involved with the show. Get involved with our brilliant community. Enjoy the wealth of benefits we offer. Uh, but that's all from us for this week. We'll see you next week. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks for watching. <laughs>